When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. future we're talking real money well while you're hearing this i am somewhere in europe or in the ocean not in the ocean on the ocean hi everybody i'm don mcdonald it's the friday q a while don's on vacation edition and uh, we still have a bunch of questions and they came in through talkingrealmoney.com, which is our website and it's really easy to send your questions in. You just go to TalkingRealMoney.com, click the contact button, and then record your question with your mic on your computer. And the better the mic, the better you sound. And so we've got a bunch of them lined up for today. And uh, let's just dive right in, shall we? Hi, this is Edward from South Florida. My wife and I are in our late 40s. And my wife's parents passed about six months ago. She's received an inheritance of 100 and $50,000. We have a net worth of just shy of $2 million. So this money isn't needed for anything. We're debt free. We've got a retirement well on the way. And um, what we'd like to do with the money is invest it and use the proceeds over the next 10, 12, 15 years for a vacation fund. So we would withdraw maybe 10,000, 15,000 a year uh, for as long as it lasts. How does somebody invest that kind of money when you're taking taking some from it a little bit each year? Uh, so some of it's short term, kind of medium term, kind of long term. Do I put it in several different accounts and uh, accordingly? Or what do you guys think? Thanks. Well, I kind of like this idea. Have a vacation pool. How to invest it, though? Well, as you're probably aware, because you've listened for a while, because you answered all the questions I would have asked, or almost all of them, you, um, like us, can't know the future. So you have to make guesses. Well, one of the tools we use to help us make those guesses is what's called a Monte Carlo simulation. And I ran a very, very, very basic one on $150,000, taking out 10000 a year fixed for however long, adjusted for inflation and looked at different portfolios. Now, remember, all of the numbers that they used for these are historical numbers. So we don't know what the future is going to look like. So here's how it works. If you want to be relatively conservative because you don't want the gut-wrenching feeling of incredibly volatile markets, you're not going to earn enough to replace what you're taking out. It's just not likely. Therefore, you have about a 37% chance about, isn't that nice? According to the Monte Carlo simulation, you have just under 40% chance of this money lasting to 30 years. So until you're 79. If you up the stock allocation, and I'm just talking about a index type product, U.S. international with some bonds, intermediate term bonds. If you go up to, let's say, 70-30, 70% 70 
globally diversified stocks, 30% bonds, you raise your success rate to about 50%. However, in the interim, the emotional toll can just be incredible. I mean, it can, it can be really tough. A lot of people do dumb things because they let their emotions rule their higher functioning brain operations. So if you can handle it, if you can handle it, the best portfolio really looks like something like a 70-30 because you don't get a big benefit, a huge benefit from going 100% equities. So 70% global equities, you, know, you could go with like an AVGE for the uh, equity portion and you could just add in a BND for the bonds, something similar to that. I mean, that would work. Thanks so much for your question. I really appreciate it and enjoy those vacations. That's a good use for the money. Now, we have another question. Good afternoon, guys. So I'm 46. I'll be retiring probably 65, possibly 67. I have my money in quite a few different funds. And over the last six months of listening to y'all, I've slowly started changing them over. What I'm shooting for is 65% in AVGE, 25% in AVUV, 5% in AVES, and 5% in AVDV. I have a very high risk tolerance, and I'm dropping about 2000 a month in it to try and make up for oh, years of not quite saving enough, in my opinion. Just want to make sure that this will work out asset class-wise, although I know you can't know ahead of time. Boy, those guys at Avantis in Kansas City must be loving the heck out of us. <laughs> oh, more Avantis ETFs. Okay, let's talk about this. Aggressive, yes. High risk tolerance, good. Because it will be a volatile portfolio. However, you're dampening a lot of that volatility by at least having a nice mix of asset classes and an overemphasis on value to kind of offset the the wildness of small cap, it's still going to be wilder than likely to be. I can't guarantee any of this stuff. Likely to be wilder than something like a Vanguard Total World Stock Index because that skews more toward very large cap companies. But um, this, I think, is a great portfolio. You're talking about AVGE, which is the total market. Uh, international, AVUV, which is U.S. small cap value, AVES, which is uh, emerging markets, and AVDV, which is international small cap value. So you're giving it the tilt. You're, in fact, you're over tilting a little to small in value, which I'm not going to argue with. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as you have the stomach for it. It really is a matter of psychology, when you have a portfolio that is this well diversified, it really isn't frightening from a permanent loss standpoint, which is the way we think about loss. We think that loss is a black and white issue, that we either win or we lose. This is why I think Tom likes soccer, because you can even tie in that game. But we, we just think of winning and losing, and losing is, is horrible and winning is wonderful. Well, with a portfolio like this, you will lose at times, but the chances of a permanent loss are so infinitesimal as to literally be statistically impossible. You know, you really can't use the word impossible very often, but if every single company in the world goes under, folks, you're not going to care about anything but survival until tomorrow. That's it. 
In fact, many of us would probably just wish to not be here anymore. So unless you own individual stocks, you've got to quit thinking the total loss is even a thing. I thought the next question was a question. But no, the next question is a statement. A very long statement, but we've got time. We've got time, and and I do want to always air other opinions as long as they're well thought out. And, and yet I reserve the right, as does Tom, to respond to these points and to, um, to call them out if we see that there's, they might be spurious. And, and I just listened to this. And so what I'm going to do with this is pause it along the way because it's so long that if I respond to everything at the end, you're going to forget what was said by the, by the correspondent. Uh, so we're going to go through this four and a half minute statement a little bit at a time, starting, of course, well, you know, at the beginning. Hey, fellas, I want to address a few specific comments about crypto that have been made on the show. Insert Don Grown here, I know, but I'd like to focus on the utility of crypto, primarily Bitcoin, instead of it as a speculation vehicle, as well as address some of the criticisms brought on by the failures in the market. First, I'd like you to address what Don said back on the December 31st show, that crypto is, quote, in search of a problem to solve. Bitcoin was born shortly after the 2008 financial crisis, when distrust and dissatisfaction in the financial system were at a peak. The banking industry has a history littered with scandals, and despite billions of dollars in fines levied against them for banking violations, fraud, consumer abuses, the fines did little to curb their behaviors and have just become a cost of doing business. The problem Bitcoin has sought to solve is to create an alternative system to an industry that has continually demonstrated its record of putting its own interests above those of its clients. All right, this is a good place to stop. Um, I have and continue to argue its utility. Uh, what is the problem it's trying to solve is that banks have been misbehaved badly in the recent past. Uh, I beg to differ. As a serious student of history, I can tell you that banks have behaved badly since the beginning of banking. Because where there is a concentration of money, there will always be problems. However, we have a reasonably good, albeit not perfect, but far better than it was in the early nineteenth, uh, the uh, early twentieth century, or in the late nineteenth century, to deal with bank fraud, and it is reasonably effective. We have not seen individual depositors lose money. Yeah, the taxpayers have had to bail them out, but how does Bitcoin solve that? I still haven't heard an, an answer. Yeah, I, I understand why it was invented, but how did it fix that problem, particularly given the obvious fraud that occurs there, too? I still don't get it, but we continue. In your January 6th show, Don, uh, Don asked, quote, has anyone paid for anything with crypto? A similar question was also asked in the recent June 28th episode, and I think there's some le- legitimate criticism there. Unfortunately, the question of what Bitcoin even is remains unanswered. Is it a currency, a security, a commodity? Try getting a straight answer on that. The CFTC has long argued that cryptocurrencies are commodities, but the C- uh, SEC considers most cryptocurrencies securities. In an SEC model, using Bitcoin would be like selling a fraction of Apple stock to buy a loaf of bread and then needing to pay capital gains tax on that fraction. Not exactly an appealing system. With so much confusion, it's no wonder most businesses don't want the hassle or financial risk of accepting Bitcoin. If it were actually treated like a real currency, I think we would see big changes in its usage. 
Well, so far here, we're in agreement. Uh, it is not a, a currency. It, it's, it's not defined. And, and my question is, why would anyone want to have anything to do with a something? Because we don't know what to call it. It's a something. I mean, I know we call it a cryptocurrency, but as you just said, we can't agree on whether it's a currency or a commodity or a security. So if we can't agree on that, then what's it good for? I'm, I'm still lost. But And by the way, the analogy to selling off chunks of Apple to pay bills is a great analogy. It is very on the nose. Again, it's an argument against crypto, though. We keep going. Switching to my next topic, you frequently condemn, condemn cryptocurrencies because of the fraud or perhaps complete ineptitude of institutions like FTX, Celsius, or Three Arrows Capital. Failures of centralized institutions within the cryptocurrency environment should not be an indictment of Bitcoin. When three major banks failed within a couple of months of each other, we didn't abandon the, do- the dollar. Bitcoin continues to serve its purpose as well as it did in 2008, arguably better. Wells Fargo, the country's fourth largest bank, repeatedly misapplied loans, wrongfully foreclosed on homes, illegally repossessed vehicles, incorrectly assessed fees and interest, and charged surprise overdraft fees. No reasonable person reads this and says, the U.S. dollar is untrustworthy because blame should fall on the institution, not the currency. I get it. Scams do occur regularly, but this is the case in all financial systems. The main difference is that you can't call Bitcoin and have them reverse the charges like you can with a credit card company. Again, it kind of seems like you're making the case a case against crypto rather than for because, well, you know, there's always going to be fraud everywhere. And you don't just, as you said, indict the dollar for the failure of the bank. So therefore, why do we need crypto, which is easily stolen too and and misused? What aboutism doesn't even make sense in this case? So the banks are bad, therefore crypto can be bad? Or if the banks are bad and it needs to be replaced with crypto, shouldn't crypto be a better replacement than the dollar? And how is it better? I'm still not seeing that. We continue. This is a good segue to when Don said that crypto is, quote, easier to steal than money. Again, in that December 31st show. I want to reiterate that cryptocurrency is still reasonably new. And though getting better, the user experience is a long way to go to make it user-friendly for the newcomer. Education and investment are necessary to keep assets safe and secure. Take our current financial system, for example. When banks need to transfer money, they don't pile bags of cash into the front seat of the branch manager's car because there's a high likelihood it would get stolen. Instead, they secure it with armed guards and armored cars. The same has to be done with Bitcoin, figuratively speaking. There's been a saying voiced in the crypto community for years, not your keys, not your crypto. In this regulation uncertain period, allowing a third party like an exchange to hold your assets can leave you open to a hack, company dissolvement, fraud, or just plain mismanagement. If you do not hold and secure the private keys of your assets, they can get stolen. Just like if you give your checking account details to an untrustworthy party, you could find your account drained. Actually, the vast majority of bank fund transfers are in electronic dollars, which in many regards is very similar to crypto. It's just that the safeguards are higher. There is a great deal more regulation about who can handle these transactions and how they're handled. And by the way, you did make the mention of the fact that with your credit card, if somebody steals from you, you can get the money back. If somebody steals your crypto, still not getting the argument for it. I'm sorry. I'm just not seeing how anything you've said is anything but 
a, uh, an, a a bunch of excuses for something that doesn't serve any purpose that nothing nothing that people are screaming for they're not nobody's clamoring for another currency nobody except a bunch of crypto people but they are clamoring for it for selfish interests which is to make their crypto values go up and now here's more there are other po- uh, comments that I'd like to respond to, particularly when Don said to name, quote, one honest transaction that you've made that would have bothered you if it was in a ledger that the government could possibly audit or look at. But in the interest of time, I'll hold off. Happy to address that in a future episode if interested. I'll close that by saying that I think we can talk about both the risks of gambling on crypto while also not demonizing it and its potential. As someone who has speculated and lost on crypto, I'll agree that it's high risk and there are many pump and dump scams. So if after all this, you actually want to be involved in crypto, do it because you're genuinely interested in the technology and you want to support the system, not because of FOMO or because someone says a coin is going to the moon. If you want to learn more, check out an uh, article written by Don on the Talking Real Money website called Everything You Want to Know About Crypto. Thanks. Once again, your conclusion basically says we agree for the most part. I understand you're excited about the technology and that a lot of people are excited about the technology. But is the way to invest in the technology buying crypto itself, buying Bitcoin? How is that supporting the technology? It's not. If you want to invest in the growth of the potential of blockchain technology, then you should put your money in companies that can benefit from the explosion that you expect, not me, uh, in crypto transactions in the future. I I believe, and I've got pretty decent evidence on my side, as you mentioned, that crypto is a fad. Blockchain may have potential future purposes. The jury's out. But for now, why would anyone want to own something that doesn't serve a current useful purpose and that is as volatile as it is, even more volatile than stocks. And stocks are an investment in companies that create things, that build, create wealth. Crypto doesn't create wealth. It just shifts it from one pocket to another. Thanks for the the call. And I gave you that in. I didn't edit a bit out. It was in its entirety. Now, let's see. One last question. And that's it for today. Hi, Tom and Don. This is Tom from Massachusetts. I just have a quick question for you, and it's on finding a fiduciary advisor. What I'm looking for is, besides finding somebody that's 100% of the time um, going to work in my best interests, am I looking for anything else in the fiduciary person, meaning the number of years that they have been doing this, the education level uh, they should have, and anything else that I may want to uh, consider. Um, Thank you very much. I look forward to hearing your answer. Well, there are certainly other things to consider. The fiduciary part, though, is the most important, the 100% always acting as a fiduciary, because that already eliminates about 99% of the money managers in America. So, your, your pool is getting small, so you can't be too picky from there. But sure, having a CFP, that just means a level of training. 
that is pretty extraordinary. The knowledge you have to have to pass your CFP exam is uh, voluminous. Uh, experience, I mean, yeah, it helps. I've got experience. Tom has experience. But it's really more the knowledge and the ability to to work with people. And a great advisor is not necessarily a numbers person. And that's contrary to what most people might think. The best advisors are people people. They get people. They understand psychology. They listen. They're interested in you, truly, absolutely interested in your situation and making a better future for you. And then finally, the thing that, that does matter, it really does, is, is the fee structure. You don't want to hire somebody at 2% per year. It's it's just too much money. I'd even like to see us, if we could, charge less than 1%, but uh, it's hard to do. The business model doesn't work well. There's just a lot of expense in being an, an investment advisor, a lot of regulatory expense and the like, a lot of people involved, a lot of equipment and technology. Uh, although you want to find an advisor who, you know, if they charge 1%, have some sort of a break point as your account gets bigger because a $10 million portfolio shouldn't be as as expensive as managing a less than $1 million portfolio. So those are a few things to look for. If you want more on how to find a fiduciary advisor, go to TalkingRealMoney.com, TalkingRealMoney.com, and then uh, uh, there's a button that says to find a fiduciary, or you can go to TalkingRealMoney.com slash help. Now, speaking of help, if you want help from one of our advisors, in fact, I was talking to Tom recently, and he said, somebody called and said, you, you really do do this. I get to talk to you and it's no cost. Yeah, it is. You can talk to Tom or any of our other advisors and get some help at no cost. If you want us to manage your money full time, you must pay. Otherwise, we want to help everybody. So go to TalkingRealMoney.com, click on Meet an Advisor. And, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, tomorrow, if you're listening to this when I put it out on Friday, well, every Saturday, uh, Tom or I am here, or both, taking your calls Saturdays 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time at 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. I'm on vacation, but I'm still somehow here talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. As you keep the lawyers happy.